Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Grammy award-winning conductor who has conducted all over the world in a career that spans five decades. He has been a DJ, an author, a composer, as well as being a music director in France, the United Kingdom and the United States. It is a real pleasure to chat with Leonard Slatkin. Leonard Slatkin, what a pleasure to speak to you today. My pleasure to be with you. Um, It's a really big pleasure for me because when I emailed you, I mentioned this, but my very first professional gig as a violinist was with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and you were conducting. It was American in Paris, Barber Knoxville, and the Planets in Litchfield Cathedral. Um, And I remember it distinctly and very well. I do too, and it was the only time I conducted the CBSO. Oh, really? I guess it was didn't make much of an impression. <laughs> <laughs> I can't comment on that. I mean, I was 21 at the time, and what I do remember is the choir going out of the cathedral door at the end of the planets, and it not really getting any quieter. Yeah, Maybe. Well, I remember that, and I remember that I, my reaction at the end was the acoustics of the cathedral kind of meant that if you came back the next day, you could still hear the concert going on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think it's fair to say that you come from a very musical family. Um, I I wonder whether you could um, let us know uh, about your background and your first earliest musical experiences in your family. My family history goes back about four generations that we can count. It is, as my name would indicate, Russian. Mm -hmm. There's a story behind that. We'll talk about that in a bit. My mother's side, where everybody was musicians, came from Belarus, and they arrived in the States just before the revolution of 1905. Mm. They included six men who were my mother's uncles. Mm. One of them was a conductor named Modest Altschuler. While he was in New York, he founded a group called the Russian Symphony of New York, consisting primarily of the Russian Jewish emigres. They would play five or six concerts a year at Carnegie Hall and introduce American audiences to a great deal of the Russian repertoire. Mm. Modeste actually conducted Rachmaninoff's debut in this country. Oh, wow. Wow. Premiering his second symphony. There were works of Scriabin, some Tchaikovsky pieces, as well as... Uh, bringing outstanding soloists like uh, Joseph Levine and Misha Elman and so many others. Mm. Also introducing works of uh, early Stravinsky and early Prokofiev. Well, around 1915 or 16, most of the family decided to move out to Los Angeles. By this time, my mother had been born. She had two brothers. One of those brothers, Herbert, was the only member of that family who was not a musician. He became a lawyer. So they went to Los Angeles. And around the same time, my father's family, of which the only musician was my dad, had settled in St. Louis, coming from Ukraine. Why? Because there was a large Ukrainian population in St. Louis. And they came around 1913. My dad's father was a barber, but he recognized that his son was a very talented 
musician. My dad took up the violin at age three, and by age 10 or 11, he was accepted by the Curtis Institute as the youngest student ever studying with the legendary pedagogue Ephraim Zimbalist. Mm, that's, a, that's a name from violin playing, yeah. Oh, isn't it though? Mm. Uh, in fact, my dad's collection of violin music, which I had, finally I realized there was nothing that I could do with it, so I donated it to the school because it has a lot of symbolist markings and bowings and comments. Wow. Anyway, so they went out to Los Angeles as well. Now, my mom and dad met at the Hollywood Bowl where there was a competition for young soloists. My father won. Mm -hmm. My mother was convinced that the competition had been rigged in his favor anyway. <laughs> she confronted him backstage. He said, look, why don't we go out for coffee and talk about it. And then two years later, they got married. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. So after that, uh, my dad went in the service, but not as a fighting member because this is a big difference in society. During the Second World War, there were groups that were set up to protect American artists from having to go fight. So they put together various orchestras and bands throughout the country. Their prime job was to record radio programs, which would be broadcast overseas and here at home. So my father was the concertmaster and one of the two music directors of something, you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Called the Army Air Force Tactical Command Orchestra. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't think about the artistic naming of things in the Second World War. Not I mean. really, no. <laughs> And this was comprised of really just the finest talents. And here's how good it was. You will appreciate this. Hope your listeners will too. <laughs> here's how good the orchestra was. Third stand inside, Ruggiero Ricci. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, eventually my mom and dad would become respectively the concertmaster, the leader of the orchestra at 20th Century Fox. My mother would be the first cellist at Warner Brothers, and her brother, Victor, a pianist, would be the pianist at Warner's. At the same time, they were founding a group called the Hollywood String Quartet with two other studio musicians. And they became immensely popular, probably the very first American string quartet. Mm. They came into being before the Juilliard did. And then there was this third other part of their life, which was as members of the recording industry and the popular scene, particularly at Capitol Records, working with artists like Nat King Cole, George Shearing, and in particular, Frank Sinatra, who became a very close friend of the family. And my father became a producer and one of the co-founders of Reprise Records. So this is what I grew up with, being able to listen to the great string quartet literature from an early age, going on the sound stages, and watching great composers like Tionkin, Max Steiner. I never saw Korngold work, sadly. Mm. But he did write the cello concerto for my mother for the film reception, <laughs> and she gave the premiere. That's, uh, that's, that's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. But then as a quartet, we would be visited by the likes of Schoenberg and Stravinsky and Hindemith and Villalobos and so many others, and then the people in the pop industry who I mentioned so there was never a question in our family about 
stylistic differences in terms of what constituted good and bad music mm -hmm. within every form there were good things and there were bad things yeah, and yeah. that has stayed with me to this very day and what instruments were you um were you learning i'm assuming you were encouraged to learn string instruments actually i was as a young person yeah. so i started on violin when i was three just like my dad mm. and clearly not like my dad i realized <laughs> i wouldn't be very good so i stopped doing that then i took up the piano when i was eight and i realized i wouldn't be as good as my uncle so i stopped that then I took up viola because nobody else in the family played it. Cello was out of the question. Yeah, Too many yeah. cellists, my mom and my brother. Uh, viola was fun and I enjoyed that. Then I went to composition and I studied with a man named Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, an mm. outstanding composer. And as one of the emigre composers like a Max Steiner or Miklos Rocha or Tiomkin, so forth and so on, all of the American generations of composers that would follow would study with him. So that's Jerry Goldsmith, Alvin Bernstein, John Williams, so forth and so on. Mm. So I had a really good, strong, formal education in that way. Well, composition seemed to be interesting to me, but in my head when I was in high school, I thought maybe I should conduct. So I had an opportunity to arrange music for the high school musicals. But then my dad died in 1963. He was 47, I was 19. Mm. And even though we weren't a close family in the sense of what you envision families to be like, it was just really about music and to lesser degree baseball. We didn't mm. see them that much. They were in the studios in the daytime and the members of the quartet would come over to the house to rehearse from around seven in the evening. And it threw a bit of a wrench in my life, so I didn't know what to do. Uh, my dad at this point had become a respected conductor with being the music director at the Hollywood Bowl, a job I would inherit at some point. Mm -hmm. And with a lot of recordings, both of the classic repertoire and then what would become his final part of his legacy, which was as an arranger in something called the Fantastic Strings of Felix Slatkin. Well, now he was gone, and I felt guilty in a way, so I stopped music altogether for a year, went to Los Angeles City College, and I thought I would become an English major with an idea perhaps of teaching. Gradually, people encouraged me to get back into music. I was given some opportunities to do some conducting, and I thought, yes, I can do this now. So for four years, I went to the Juilliard School to study conducting with Jean Morel. And then after, during that same time in the summers, I would go out to Aspen to study with Walter Suskind. Two amazing names to have been taught by. Yeah. I'm assuming they had very um, different approaches. Um, did, what did you learn from either of them um, specifically? Morel was very much French in his method of teaching. Teaching, conducting is very difficult. Not many people mm. can do it well. Mm. And he was more about really focusing on the technical aspects and in particular, your ability to listen. Mm. He had the finest ears of any conductor I ever saw. I remember once at a rehearsal at Juilliard, 
you have to envision the conductor is facing the orchestra. So that means that when the conductor looks at the French horns, he doesn't see the bell. The bell is facing the opposite way towards the wall in the back. And we were doing La Paris of Ducat. And at one point he went, oh, Monsieur Third Horn, your mute is not the same as your colleagues. <laughs> wow. he, couldn't <laughs> he could hear in a chord that, and, and, you know, it just totally, we all thought we needed to quit yeah. at that point. But he did teach some of the fine American conductors, including James Levine, Jorge Mester, James Conlon, Dennis Russell Davies, John Nelson, and so many others. Uh, and he was a teacher. I was used to this kind of teaching. You know, the Russian school, what I, the, the school that I grew up with, was one where nothing was ever good, or at least the students were never told that. Hmm. The idea being that if it was good, nothing needed to be said, only when something was not right did you say anything. And Morel was like that too. So after uh, my final concert at Juilliard as a student doing American in Paris, I knew it had gone well. I knew it. And I mm. went running up to the studio where he taught me, sitting there with this little piece of dangling cigarette, a Gaulois, which he always smoked. And eventually he looked up, uh, it was not bad. Well, I was in heaven. I finally got a compliment all these years. So that was his approach. Mm. Suskind was a more practical kind of teacher taking you under the wing like a father, telling you what orchestras would expect from you, really honing in, in particular, on the art and craft of working with soloists. Mm. And I guess I felt that was critical, having been in orchestras and having talked to other members of the orchestra, you might be able to give the most magisterial and insight into a Bruckner symphony, but if you can't conduct a Chopin piano concerto, the orchestra doesn't care. No, no absolutely true. I'd, <laughs> it came up when the last person I interviewed, which was Christopher Seaman, and we, we both agreed, you know, it's, it's where you really find out the men from the boys, to use an old-fashioned phrase. But the um, other thing was that the repertoire back then in the 60s was very different from what conductors today encounter. So all of a sudden, you have Zigunerweisen, you have these kind of works which require the ultimate flexibility. And it's why an artist like Yasha Heifetz really had a lot of trouble with conductors because uh, many of them just didn't know this repertoire. Mm. And you had to, you had to know it inside out, be it a Glazunov concerto, whatever it was. Uh, so I, I know when I teach conducting, which is not so often, if I have an orchestra available or even pianists, I will throw in a concerto. You just try to have conductors catch that big run in the first moment of the Emperor Concerto and get that E flat right on time. Mm -hmm. Even pianists, when I do it, I try to have pianists in the audience. I say, okay, all of you, you've played this piece. When the pianist gets to the top, just clap, one single clap when you think the top note happens. Pianists who should know better because they play it, they can't do it. No, exactly. Um, I, I'll jump in with a story here about that. I, I, it, in fact, it's about a jump in. Um, I was on tour with the CBSO not long before I retired, and Andrus Nelson was conducting, and he had to go back 
to uh, back home to Latvia because his daughter had been rushed to hospital. So he left, mm. and in between leaving the hotel as a violinist in the in the concert and getting to the concert hall in Dortmund, in that time it turned out I was going to conduct the concert. And in oh, that wow. concert, in that concert was Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto with um, Rudolf Buchmann. Two tough ones. Yeah, Two tough ones. Absolutely. Two, and 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 everybody knows about those runs, and everybody knows that they're there. And I had five minutes with Rudolf before the concert. And mm -hmm. I said, how are we going to do this? Do you divide it into groups of six? Do you divide it into octaves? How do you do this? He said, oh, it's easy, Mike. We cheat. I said, how do we cheat? He said, well, I've done this with orchestras. On, I conducted it myself. And of course, the whole orchestra's got to come in at the top of that run with no conductor. He said, so what I do is I tap my left leg. You give the upbeat in tempo. <laughs> and then I reach the top of the scale. So we practiced it twice. He tapped his left leg. I gave the upbeat in tempo afterwards and, and it landed. In the concert, of course, the whole orchestra's looking at me, thinking, oh, go on, don't screw it up. Don't. And all I was looking at was Bookbinder's left leg. <laughs> That's very funny. I, I remember one soloist, uh, it was Sherrod Tchaikovsky, and we were doing the uh, Rubenstein Fourth Concerto which I knew, but I had never done before. Mm. And he said, I've done this concerto with good conductors. I've done it with bad conductors. And now I'm going to do it with you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know how to take that. It all went fine. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, with Suskind, you got less stick technique, but much more about approach with uh, yeah. to, to have rehearsals, I suppose, and also yes. have to deal with soloists. And... The, the practical matters, yeah. um, things that Morel wouldn't deal with, how to reorchestrate things when you needed to do that, the psychology of working with orchestras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all, all these things. You know, he was a very fine pianist as well. In fact, one of the first great memories of those days in Aston was my big conducting debut, as it were, was working with him in the Ravel G major. I mean, the idea that you get to conduct and your teacher is playing the solo part <laughs> yeah, is yeah. very scary, but uh, he was wonderful. Mm. Uh, I loved both of them equally. They were incredible influences, mentors, uh, and, and they cared about their students, at least the ones that they thought were worth it. The ones they thought were so-so, they kind of just, they didn't give them a bad time at all. But those of us who exhibited some degree of talent, they would both ride us. They would make sure that we would go above what we thought we were capable of. And I'm assuming that it was through Suskind and being assistant to him with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra that that ended up with you getting your first music directorship there? Uh, not entirely. Oh. Suskind, I was in my third year, both at Juilliard and in Aspen, and I was working with a student orchestra. I did the Hindemith Metamorphosis, and Suskind was about to take over as music director in St. Louis. The executive director was at my performance, and they offered me the assistantship back then. So that's starting in 1968. For 10 years, I was in various, what we would call secondary positions, assistant, associate, associate principal, principal guest. Mm -hmm. And I was beginning to get my sea legs as a guest conductor. 
I started with smaller orchestras and gradually people began to take an interest in me. Surprisingly, the first event where other orchestra managers saw me was when St. Louis acquired the rights to give the very first live performance of, wait for it, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> it's, you'll probably remember this. It started life as a recording. Yeah, it was a record, yeah, that's right, yeah. And the show part didn't come later. So people wanted to cash in on the success and a version was made to present in concert. And everybody wanted to see how it went. So managers from across the states came to the performance. They saw me work. Uh, the librarian and I had to do a lot of reorchestration to make it work live. We spent the whole day before the rehearsal to put that together. And then the big break, as you call it, actually came about because in one year, 1974, three conductors were not available for their concerts. The first was supposed to be the debut of Ricardo Muti with the New York Philharmonic. He was to arrive in New York on a Sunday and the plane arrived, but he wasn't on it. <laughs> and all of a sudden they found themselves without a conductor. The manager of the Philharmonic, Nick Webster, who just passed away a few months ago, he called me at home and said, what are you doing Tuesday? <laughs> and lo and behold, I made my debut. And here's the, the thing about that. You, you have to be careful. The good thing about Suskin in my assistant years was I was there at all the rehearsals. I had, he made me learn everything. One day we were doing Von Williams six and he turned around and said, Leonard, I'd like to hear the first five minutes, please. So I went up and 35 minutes later, when it was over, I turned around and said, well, how was the opening? <laughs> so that was the job to really know this music. And the program at the Philharmonic that I jumped in on was um, uh, Prokofiev V, which I'd already done. Mm -hmm. Beethoven third concerto with Byron Janus, uh, who was already suffering from his infirmities. In fact, he only made it through the first two performances. And then the Waverly Overture in Berlioz, Opus oh, One. Yeah, yeah wonderful piece. It's a, it's a lovely piece. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'd gotten to know these, so I could jump in and take over the program. The next jump in was in, I think, January of that year, when uh, Daniel Barenboim wanted to be with Jacqueline Dupre. And he had canceled all of his conducting engagements that season. But his program had Bruckner II, and before I could say I've never conducted a note of Bruckner, and frankly, at that point, I really didn't like Bruckner at all. Uh, it turned out that they didn't want that because it was part of a recording cycle they were going to be doing with him anyway. So that program was the Purcell Chacon mm -hmm. in a version that I put together, not the Benjamin Britten, which is very good, of course. Mm -hmm. And after that was Von Williams VI. Now I'd gone through it and I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> then the... Uh, second half began with the second symphony by the American Walter Piston and closed with Laval. So an all orchestral program, three pieces that the orchestra had never played. And it went very well. And we had a long relationship together, me and the Chicago Symphony, as I did with New York. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that happened was that Sir Adrian Bolt had become ill. And I was asked to come to London to do the Royal Philharmonic. And this was a program that also he had Job on the program, which I knew, but I was a little reluctant to come to do that. In fact, I was questioning the idea of coming and doing English music, and I thought, well, why not? 
and Vaughn Williams Six. Remember at that time, Andre Previn was kind of the only non-Brit to be dealing with English music. Mm, and that's I thought, right, yeah. well, maybe another one. So I took PW6, Portsmouth Point, I took over, and I had to quickly learn the Delius Violin Concerto. Uh, the other work on the program was the Sir Lennox Barclay Third Symphony, but the composer was conducting. And that all went well. So by the time I finished that year, all of a sudden, all these invitations came in. But I tried to be careful about the programming. I never wanted to impinge much on music director's territory, except for Philadelphia, where they actually wanted an American first half and the second Rachmaninoff symphony, which was an Ormandy Philadelphia specialty. Mm. One of the hardest things for conductors is to work with an orchestra at the highest level in pieces they know very well. I mean, what do you do? My job really was to find a kind of balance. Why would I want to upset the Philadelphia legendary sound? Mm, and it was right. Yeah. I didn't want to change that. Uh, and at the same time, what could I do that was different? Well, I would do the first uncut version there. Okay. But also, I suppose some of my tempos and little ideas were a bit different. But the first half were all pieces that they really hadn't encountered much, if at all. So that was the bulk of the time there. Now, I went as my first music directorship to New Orleans, which was really at the advice of the executive director of the Chicago Symphony, who would become at this point my mentor, because Suskind and Morel no longer were alive. And he would tell me what to do. And I said, why am I going to New Orleans? He said, I'm not going to tell you, but you're going. Yeah. Said yes. So I went, and it was two years. We went through four executive directors. One time during Beethoven 9, the auditorium uh, was leaking oil through the pipes that was splattering onto <laughs> all of it. Um, then I got offered three different orchestras within the same week, and one of them was St. Louis. And then I just go back, which is something else that's very difficult to do to return to a place where you cut your musical teeth. Mm. But I went back, why? Because I felt of all of them, they had the administration people who I could work the closest with. And that's very critical on the American scene. And that was, that was going to be my next question, to list the places you've been music director, New Orleans Symphony, St. Louis Symphony, National Symphony Orchestra, Washington, Detroit Symphony, Orchestra Nationale de Leon, and the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So obviously a mu being a music director is something you like. Um, what challenges uh, have you found, you know, hiring and firing, or, you know, is it just a joy when you've got the right administration, as you said, about St. Louis, to put programs together, the kid in the sweet shop sort of thing? It is, but the music director role in the States is very different than that in Europe, mm. and I assume also in Asia. Uh, the States' idea always has been, because we do not have federal subsidies much at all. Mm. We did in the World War II, but no, no more. We are responsible for the whole season for fundraising, planning, and back in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, really the idea was that if something was to go wrong with something in the season, in this country, the music director would be the person that bore the brunt of the responsibility. Right, you're okay. the name, you're the face of the orchestra. And I always felt 
that's why I needed to be part, whether it was POPs programming, all the education activities, what's now called outreach as well, all these things. If something didn't work, I wanted to be involved because I was going to be held responsible anyway. Mm. In Europe, you have another group of people. Most music directors don't get quite so involved in the selection of the rest of the repertoire through the year. Even the guest conductors, soloists that happen, for the most part are taken over by others within the administration. And indeed, if something goes wrong, more than likely the intendant is going to be the one that's to shoulder right. the blame. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in, in the, the new book I'm writing, I try to address things like that. What are the differences? Are there solutions to this? You, you brought up the idea of hiring and firing. Well, there was a time, of course, when the music director was solely responsible for putting their orchestras together. Mm. Beecham founded an orchestra. Toscanini had complete authority at the NBC. And right into the 60s, this was pretty much the case. And then it started changing with the rise of the unions. Mm. And the orchestras began to have more say in who would enter the group. One thing that the, is a little troubling to me is that we find ourselves in a more awkward position when it comes to figuring out when is it time for a musician to stop. Mm, yeah. Now, my mom was an example to me. Uh, I got a phone call from her when I think she was just a little bit over 60, something like that. And she said she had two weeks of work with John Williams, and then she was quitting. I said, what do, what do you mean you're quitting? She said, I'm not going to play the cello anymore. I said, why not? And she said the words that, to me, make the biggest difference. I don't want people to remember when Eleanor Slatkin played well. So she was able to just stop when she was at a certain point and feeling she was going to yeah. only deteriorate. So this is where there's a big, big difference between many European groups, probably most, and American ones. Here we have no age limit in any job in the United States. You cannot discriminate on the basis of age, mm. and that is as it should be. In Europe, for the most part, orchestras have a mandatory retirement age. You collect right. your benefits and your pension, and that's it. So artistic worth doesn't come into play. It's, it's a number. Mm. So is there a balance between the two? Is there something that says, okay, there comes a point when you no longer can hold to the standard to which your orchestra exists? And I think that responsibility should actually fall to the members of the orchestra themselves. Yeah, even, yeah. even realizing that you might in one day be in that position yourself. But you have to start thinking about the greater good for the larger group. Mm. Uh, I think I think that there was uh, just off the top of my head, uh, you've made me think of a specific case that happened in London when Maurice Murphy, the legendary yeah. first trumpet of the London yeah. Symphony Orchestra, got to 65, which in the UK is retirement age. Uh, he was asked back by the orchestra, said, you know, you're still playing like Morris Murphy and like everybody wants to hear you. Please carry on. Uh, which he did until he retired a second time later on. I don't know how old he was, but he retired maybe six, seven years later. Yeah, something um, a little bit like uh, his colleague Adolf Herseth, the first trumpet in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. time. Um, mm. But most people really have difficulty 
realizing that they can't do it. And there's great financial incentive here in the States. You can keep playing for whatever age, it takes forever. In fact, it's almost impossible to dismiss anybody now. There are only three reasons you can do it. You can do it for incompetence, which requires a, about a two-year process, and an arbitrator is brought in, and you primarily judged by the members of the orchestra. So that's very difficult. In sobriety, so that's drugs or alcohol, and that's really hard to prove. You can't just pull something off and say, okay, we're going to test you now. That, that's hard. And the other is her uh, harassment. Can be against the conductor, can be somebody on the staff. I had to get rid of two people because one had gone after somebody in the orchestra and the other had really abused somebody on the staff and that's not tolerable at all. Mm. But I also remember times with very great orchestras and looking down at the sections and seeing people literally, they, the strings couldn't vibrate, they would just sit there, but it was impossible to get them out. It had nothing to do with the age, it had to do with clearly they couldn't do the job anymore. It doesn't matter mm. what the age is. Yeah. I, I think all of us need to step back. I, I know that I'm going to stop the second I know I can't produce at a level that I would find acceptable. Mm. Mm. That might be next week. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it won't. <laughs> I looked on your website and, and uh, Wikipedia and places like that, and I can't think of any orchestra in the world you haven't conducted, frankly, having looked at the list. Yeah, um, and, and being principal guest in quite a few as well. Yeah. Um, when you go and guest, or when you were doing a lot of your guesting, did you have um, a set routine? Do you have a list of do's and don'ts that you would could say to people, young conductors? You know, when you're, I've called it the hamster wheel of guest conducting. <laughs> you get on this wheel and it's very difficult to get off until, you know, you find a music directorship or you find a, a relationship with, you know, maybe eight or nine orchestras that you can fill your diary with. And then you don't have to do first dates so much. But do you have do's and don'ts and, and things do. that you would do? Yeah. I do. It's one of the chapters in the book. I remember <laughs> Richard Strauss had 20 rules, uh, 10 rules for conductors. Mm. I have 20. <laughs> so, right. uh, but, but the quick advice is this. Yeah. You have to have certain core repertoire pieces that you really feel comfortable in. Mm. Try not to go somewhere on those first dates with a whole program of pieces that you're doing for the first time. Don't mm. do that. Now, I know some conductors can do it. It's not hard, especially when you're with a very good orchestra who knows the repertoire. Mm. They're going to play it with or without you. It doesn't matter. But at least go with something where you're confident and always, always start with a piece that you can play all the way through without stopping. Mm -hmm. Let the yeah. orchestra get to know how you conduct and you get a feeling of how the orchestra responds to you. Don't take on the most complicated pieces first because all you're going to be doing is talking and explain, mm. don't do that. So play through whatever would be the standard work on the program, assuming there is one, and assuming that you're not a specialist. If you're a specialist in new music, of course you're gonna be doing that, but probably the group you're gonna work with is used to that. So that's one rule. Second thing, if you can do it as a guest, try to conduct somewhere in a country where you do not speak one word of the language. Mm. 
Why? Because then you learn what your job is as a conductor, the communication, not by verbal means, but by your physical and emotional demeanor. Mm. Third, if you do speak to the orchestra, keep the remarks minimal. When you're starting out, nobody needs to know that the sun is coming up here and there's a burst coming through the clouds and all that. Orchestra doesn't want to hear that. They want to know the basics. Do you want it louder, softer, shorter, longer? Things like that. Mm. Keep it basic. And the first time through, if you hear something wrong, go back and say, let's do that again. Something wasn't right. The second time through, the reason I say that is because you have to determine what's just an honest mistake or something where the player truly didn't know mm, what was yeah. going on. So uh, There's a wonderful story about a conductor, Jorge Mester, who talked about conducting Philadelphia Orchestra. They were doing Schumann's second. And there's some tricky bits in the scherzo. Oh, yeah. One, he just, it just wasn't happening. He did it three times. And he said to the violins, he said, you know, it's very strange. I've never had a problem in this spot before. And the second violinist said, funny, neither have we. <laughs> so you have to be a little careful about what you say. Mm. Uh, another thing for the conductor, uh, when they're making these first rounds, you don't have to be liked, mm -hmm. but you have to be respected. Mm. That's why it's important to establish those musical credentials immediately by playing something through as much as you can. Now, just as I've said, bring a standard piece. You have to, as a young conductor, find some part of the repertoire that you're really interested in, but that not so many people are doing. Mm. Uh, you, you, you probably know, Michael, when I came to England and through most of my time there, I was doing a lot of English music mm. because here in the States, it wasn't done very often. You know, the occasional Enigma or a cello concerto of the planets, of course, but Tippett barely heard, uh, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would really be interesting to do Waltons and all of these composers that I loved. That did come from Susskind, mm -hmm. that, that love of English music. Um, just the same as with my teacher who was French, when I got to Lyon, I really focused in on all that French music that we learned, but not just the usual suspects. It was people like Ropartz or Pianet, Roger Ducasse, mm. names that were not known even to the French, but <laughs> repertoire that I was really interested in and did. But I think it, it's gonna be a good route for young conductors. We don't know how we're gonna come out of this particular time that we're in right now. But I suspect that there's going to be reliance on two things. One is that we're going to be looking for comfort and solace from what we know and love. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is discoveries. But they have to be discoveries you're making because of a passion for it. And here's the final piece of advice that I can think of off the top of my head. Since I started back in the 60s and now, the repertoire for a conductor has enlarged, not just within what we loosely call the classical canon. Now you do need to know about the world of jazz. You need to know about the world of film music. You need to know about uh, Broadway and West End. It's advantageous now to have mm. a little bit of a handle on music and styles 
that are perhaps not normal in the way you were taught or learned. Uh, part of the reason that I think I was hired in Detroit was we, we had a great first date. It had the Walton Partita, John Williams Horn Concerto Prokofiev Five, right up my alley, no mm. problem. And they thought, boy, after five years, we think we found our person. <laughs> and both sides said, well, maybe we need another second date here to see. So we hastily arranged a couple summer concerts. One was a Beethoven program, fine. But it was the next one. They said, you probably don't want to do this. It's a kind of family pops event with the Von Trapp family singers from <laughs> Sound of Music fame. Right. Said, oh, come on, sure, I'm happy to do that. And I think the orchestra was actually stunned that somebody who would do Beethoven one night would turn around and do Rodgers and Hammerstein or all the other stuff that comes with that. But I think that's a critical part of a conductor's job now. I, I completely agree. And I think it's quite a shame that the orchestra was stunned because, you know, I've said it before on these podcasts, you know, music is music. And, and right. you know, there's nothing stopping you having a deep love for Beethoven or uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein or, you know, Miles Davis or, you yep. know, the, the music of Bollywood. It doesn't matter. You know, if you wish, if you want to conduct those things and you're a conductor that who's to be respected, you're going to throw yourself into it 100% and you're going to want... Yeah, and you have to find... Yeah. You, you need to do as much as possible and then start to discard what you don't think you do yes. well. Yes, exactly. But you yeah. don't want to ever get up there and conduct or play, perform, something where you're not wholly invested. Mm. So recently for me, I've really had a great time doing some different kinds of things where the screen is up and they're showing the video and we get to play the music while it's happening. But I'm, I'm not doing the uh, Star Wars type stuff. I'm doing things that are a little off the beaten track, some silent films and other things where there's minimal dialogue, where the music really has to carry the storyline. Uh, and aren't they hard to do those? Oh, they're man. Very, those you know, John, they're very difficult. Yeah, John, John Williams and I are very close friends we've been that way ever since you know, the, the old Hollywood days you know I asked him once I said is there any kind of medium in the film industry you, you've never done he said yeah there is one and I would never do it and I said what he said cartoons yeah oh yeah yeah but you will yeah. have probably played a few of these you look back at um, uh, Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry and listen to those six seven minute scores which are <laughs> non-stop with more notes and tempo changes than we ever see in the right of spring mm. that stuff is hard I think Scott, Scott Bradley, the guy who did the music for Tom and Jerry, is a genius, or was a genius. So was, so was um, uh, Carl Stallings, uh. Warner's guy. Each, each studio had their own people to yeah. do those, but that's so hard to do. Ugh. Landon, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask about one specific concert. In, during your time as chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, you conducted the last night of the proms, and famously, the last night of the proms after 9-11 happened. Um, I wonder whether you could tell us about the lead-up to that concert and how it all panned out and came about. The concert was, I think, on the 14th, so a few days afterwards. Mm. And we had done a program the night before the attacks. Mm. I was getting ready to go to Maida Vale to actually work on the speech, which right. has been given traditionally by conductors since the time of Sargent. 
Mm. It's supposed to be filled with puns and jokes, but also thank yous to everybody. And I was going to do that. I hopped into a taxi, mm. told him where I was going. He had the radio on. And I could hear some words, World Trade Center, Twin Towers, attack. I asked him to turn it up. And as we were on that drive, I understood, I guess, what was going on. Mm. So by the time I got to the studios, everybody was just going around with complete blank stares. Nobody knew what to do or to say. The internet was up and running. Mm. So I could get an idea of what had happened. At the time, I tried to call home. You couldn't do that. All the phone lines were out. Mm. And I, at the time, I was living in Washington, D.C. So that was one of the scenes of the attacks as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my first thought, I remember going in to see Paul Hughes, uh, the uh, general manager of the orchestra. And I said, you know, I know what the last night is the original program was very much within the tradition you do the composer that you were featuring during the year you had yeah. certain themes you did those you have the 25 or so minutes of patriotic music and there's yeah. festivities and fun and i said paul i don't think i could do it i think you need somebody more ingrained in this but right now i i can't and then nick kenyon who was head of bbc3 at the time Radio 3, mm. he, he came in and he sat down he said, you're our conductor and we need to do this with you. And this is not the time for the celebratory moment. Mm. So we sat down and we reworked, we, we I get joke up, <laughs> okay. reworked the program. Mm. It included the last one of Beethoven Ninth mm. called for Brotherhood. Mm. I thought it would be appropriate to have four of the chorales from Child of Our Time of Tippett. Yes. Yeah. Using the uh, Bach chorale idea, but reset as American spirituals. Uh, our soloist, Frederick von Stade, couldn't get anywhere from the States, so I can't remember who jumped in. Uh, I think we did some more Van Sons than something else. Mm. Um, we had to make so many decisions so fast. What would be the order of things? I asked if we could please play the American and British anthems at the start of the program and have the audience sing them to begin. Mm. And people said, well, in England, we're not gonna know the words to the American one. So just pass them out, everybody knows the tune. Mm. Um, so we did that, I have to say, I have never heard the anthem from my country sung as movingly and as vigorously as I heard it that night. Amazing. We got, we got through the first part and that was all fine. Then in the second part, I played the Barbara Adagio for strings. As mm. I explained to the audience, this was the piece that even though it was not intended for this kind of occasion, it somehow came to symbolize it. First was done at Roosevelt's funeral and played on so many occasions. I said, just in the way that people often play the Nimrod variation from Enigma as a tribute. Mm, what's what's true. intended yeah. is that as a memorial. 
Or they used to do the Adagiotto for Mahler 5 or the Ode of Beethoven 7, whatever it happens to be. And I remember starting it. And then I didn't remember much after that. I bet. I was just too wrapped up. I do remember, I'd asked for silence, but there was some applause, it didn't matter. And I decided to, to leave the podium just for a little bit before whatever we played at the end. And I collapsed on mm. the couch in the dressing room. I was just crying. And then finally I got it back together to finish it up. And there is a video of it on YouTube, mm. which was edited and it showed the kind of still faces of policemen, police women, firefighters just standing. And I also remember images from the proms in the park. Mm, yeah. Couple huddled in the American flag. I tried to remind everybody that this was not an attack on America, it was an attack on the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But you know something? The, the sad postscript to this was I got hate mail from people. Oh. People oh. who really thought that how dare I intrude on the traditions of the night. Now America understands what we've all known in this part of the world, things like that. I got a death threat. Crazy. Uh, it, was, it was a crazy, crazy time. Mm. But uh, it's certainly that evening will be forever etched. I'm sure, yeah. When I watched The Barber the one time, I mean, my, we all have different tempi we do, but that one, it couldn't be slow enough for me. Mm. It should yeah. have had an ending. And you can see me crying during peace. It's mm. uh, somewhat uncharacteristic, but it was just that kind of feeling that night. It was something. Earlier on, you mentioned your book, which is sitting to my left in my study here. Which it's one? called uh, uh, Conducting Business Unveiling the Mystery Behind the Maestro. It's a wonderful book. For those who haven't read it, it's autobiographical, but and then you drop in chapters about the business of conducting. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a chapter on health when you had your heart attack. There's chapter, as you said, um, 20 things that you should do on your guest conducting. What made you write a book? Was it something you always had a plan for or did it, you just suddenly think, do you know what, I'm going to write this all down? I loved to write from my mm. earliest days. In fact, when I was in high school, I dabbled in science fiction. Mm. I, I loved it. It was fun. Um, then, you know, as things moved more in the musical direction, I stopped. And then I began the, the website. Mm. It's about nine years ago, maybe now. You can actually read all the pieces, go all the way back. <laughs> um, and over the few years, I thought, you know, my writing skills are not horrible. And then other people said, you know, Leonard, you have so many stories mm. that you tell about your experiences, your family going all around, all the people you've worked with. I mean, I'm one of the last people, I'm, I'm 75 now, so I was able to work with Rubenstein and with Milstein and people like that. A lot of that's in the second book. Mm. Uh, but they wanted me to put those things down. So between the web pieces, the articles I'd written for newspapers and magazines, uh, one of which was controversial. In, in, in England, I wrote a piece about what we should be wearing on the stage, and I got in trouble. Oh, I remember that. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. I, I just felt everybody's arms should be covered, but I said something about that, and then I that I shouldn't have said. But I still sort of feel that. It's not about men and women. I just 
think seeing bare arms doesn't seem right. The longer sleeve is better, and especially here in the summer, the, the gentlemen wear uh, short sleeve white shirts. They look like they're playing for their high school graduation. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Um, there's, there's something about the uniform look of an orchestra that always appealed to me, uh, but uh, times are changing, so we'll, we'll see. But, but yeah, your, your book reads wonderfully well, and I can wholeheartedly recommend it to anybody who's interested in classical music, but also to young conductors or yeah. uh, even old <laughs> conductors like me. <laughs> it's, it's also not really meant for musicians per se. It's just anybody who's interested in music. There's yeah. There are very few technical matters that I address here. So mm. it's, it's, a, it's about learning, as you say, in particular about what a conductor does when you're on the road, working in the opera house, uh, all these different aspects of the profession, they're tied in with, I think, a few good stories along the way. So it's mm. it was fun to write this second book as well. And this new one is a little more serious in tone because it does try to address issues of our time, mm. uh, trying to offer solutions on the problem of, in particular, music education. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're coming on at least 40 years now where I've seen a decline in the States and around the world of arts, not just music, but arts education. Young people don't have it. No, no, they, don't. they don't have no. it in the homes now. We used to sit around the radio listening to broadcasts. Then the Bernstein Young People's Concerts. This was family activities. Everybody in my school experience, uh, whether it was middle school or high school, grammar school, um, we had music during the class hours, not before and after. Or mm. if you didn't have music, you had art, or you had sculpture, or you had uh, any number of things. It was part of the curriculum. And this is all going away, I fear, for the general populace, because even if you don't enter into this professionally, which most people don't, there's something about understanding what the artistic culture contributes to society as a whole, mm. why it makes us better. There is an author, David McCulloch, he wrote fabulous biographies of presidents and other politicians. I remember him giving a speech and he talked about the artistic nature of society and often what people don't consider to be art would be inspired by something that when they're young. So if you're driving along the motorway and you see a billboard, you very rarely think that's a piece of art. Well, of course it is. Oh, somebody, yeah, yeah. Had, mm -hmm. somebody had to create something out of nothing. Mm. That's right. Yeah. When you do that, you're making art. Mm. And that's what we need to do. Encourage in this visual age, we need to encourage the imagination. Create. That's why I don't like um, videos that don't belong with uh, an abstract piece of music. Mm. Beethoven 9 doesn't need a video to go with it. No. You sit there and you can create your own video as you're. Yes. It's going on in your head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as you said, you just passed 75 and you started conducting quite a while ago. I'll put it yeah. gently like that. Yeah. If you could tell your young self something from all of your years of experience, what would you tell your young self? It's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. I was one of those people who sheltered myself with nothing but music. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the world. One day when I was at Juilliard, I lived on 115th Street. Juilliard was at 122nd. I would walk there every day. Mm. Up on Broadway, a block from where I lived, 
was Columbia University. I walked past, there was all kinds of chaos and stuff happening. I didn't know what it was. Got to the school, did my work, went back home, and my flatmate asked me, do you believe what was going on up the street? I said, no, what was it? He says, well, the students have taken over the, the dean's office and they're holding him captive there. What? And I said, well, that's fine. I, I got to go study. <laughs> and one wonderful thing, if it's used properly, that young people have today, they have by far a better chance of knowing the world mm. than I envisioned. Isolating was the one thing I would change. In fact, uh, Carlo Mio Giulini, one of the conductors who will come up on our list, mm. uh, I got to know him quite well. We would, I would go to Chicago when he was the principal guest, his program there, and then on Monday nights they would have a run out to Milwaukee and I would go in the car with them and we would talk about many things. And he told me when he had had heart surgery, the doctors only gave him a 50% chance of coming out. And when he did wake up, he said the following. He said, I realized at that moment I was going to make music a part of my life, not my life a part of music. Mm, yeah. And those words struck home, and I wish I had been able to do that at a younger age. So Leonard, the 10 questions at the end of the podcast, and let's start as I always do. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love most of all the sound of the ocean, whether it's waves crashing on a cliff or just gently lapping up at the shore. And the sound you hate? Doors slamming, <laughs> especially car doors. I really don't like that sound at all. <laughs> Composers, do not put it in your piece. I'm not going to play it. <laughs> um, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I've had a lot of weeks free now. <laughs> uh, if I had a choice, I would think back to one time when I was on a vacation. I was in Mexico and I had possibly the most ideal eight hours. I went outside. I was laying in a hammock. I was just totally relaxed. Iguanas were running under my hammock. And then I went on to a kind of beach. I have to stay out of the sun, but still uh, mm. it was good and somebody came by and i got a massage on the beach and then we went to a dinner and i had duck tacos ah it was so good um I, I would i would like to be by the ocean just getting all things to clear my mind that i possibly could that's what i would do if i had 24 hours free brilliant um who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear well, there were several. It's hard to pick one. And these were all people that I saw conduct. So yep. that makes a big difference. Believe it or not, I saw Toscanini in 1952. Mm. The NBC Symphony came to Los Angeles. I was eight years old. They played pictures of an exhibition. I immediately asked to get the recording that he yeah. had made. And that was the first really memorable moment. This kind of clarity. We didn't have a very good orchestra in Los Angeles in those days. Huh. Good orchestras were the ones out in the suburbs that were comprised of the studio players. 
yeah. were really outstanding ones. So he was a big influence in that sense. Fritz Reiner, who at least came to, he was the only one I knew who came to Los Angeles who made the Philharmonic sound like a good orchestra. Oh. He would come there often. I was sorry I never saw him rehearse. Um, obviously Bernstein, there's no American who can say that Bernstein wasn't an influence simply because we didn't have that international celebrity until he came along. Yeah, he so was the first, probably, wasn't he? He yeah. was the first one. There were Americans before him and good ones, but they didn't have that uh, mystique, charisma, whatever you call it, the genius, that's mm. even better. Uh, and he's, he's the first one to really do that. So you're not talking really until the late 1940s when this happens. Uh, that's a long time. Yeah. And the other is the aforementioned Giulini, just because he helped me to understand the spiritual nature of music. Not, not mm. the religious, the spiritual. What it means, how you can delve into the soul with what music can do for people. So those were the four. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Well, he, he retired last year, but I would have put Bernard Heitink mm. up on that list. Um, I have a lot of respect for one person that I know you never, Barbara Hannigan, although I've never mm. seen her live. But I have seen Karina Kalamakis, huge talent. Mm. I, I think I, I admire her greatly. I think she's gonna be a formidable force. Funnily enough, I'm interviewing her on Wednesday. Well, so, you, tell her, you can tell her that for me. I will do, yeah. Well, hopefully I'm still on the living list when she responds. <laughs> <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? On the technical level, it was a work called World's Bliss of Peter Maxwell Davies. <laughs> it's my choice as well. Isn't that a pig? Really? No kidding. It's I, a pig, I, yeah. Oh, I mean, this, I, I, I agreed to do the American premiere, mm -hmm. and I got the score and realized that the first thing I had to do was take it to a mathematician <laughs> to help me understand it. Yeah. There, there were combinations of bars and temple relationships that I was, I, I was stumped. And finally, I kind of got it. But the funny part of this story, we did it and it, it went very well. We even took it on tour, played it in Carnegie Hall, played it in San Francisco. Mm. And Max was there for the Carnegie performance. And afterwards he asked if he could borrow my copy of the score. And I said, why? He says, because I need to see your markings because I can't figure out how to conduct it. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, because I conducted it in his presence as well, he said to me, he said, you nope. know, you need, a, you need a mixture of boulets. And he just listed about five of the greatest conductors to me before I'd even started the second day's rehearsal. I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm really on, uh, yeah, I'm really on a... <laughs> Remember there, there were bars where it was like 15, 16, plus one, eight, and all this stuff. And I, I remember looking at the orchestra was with St. Louis, and I just said, I know this is a complicated measure. It's in four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? That will have changed over the years. Now, it's a really good noise reduction headset. Yeah, for yeah. a couple of reasons. One of which is the actual travel on the plane, yeah. so I can do it so I can't hear either the sound of the engine or more likely the inevitable two-year-old who's behind me kicking <laughs> the, the chair. Yeah. Uh, but I also find it's very helpful for uh, 
studying purposes, when I want to hear something, or whether I'm editing my own radio shows that I do, other things like that, it's very hard to see me traveling without a really good headset now. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Fortunately, I got to do it. Mm -hmm. You pointed out earlier that I must have loved being a music director. I did mm -hmm. it for 43 years and I did love it. I liked the puzzle solving aspect. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I finished my tenure in Detroit how much stress it was. And now that I'm just guest conducting, I do some teaching, I do writing, I do all this stuff. I've been able to achieve something that I'm at the point now where all I have to do is what I love. Mm -hmm. Talking to you or doing all the little things that I can do. It's, I didn't really take into account how stressful that job had been, especially having done it mostly in the United States. Mm. It took its toll on me. I found it interfered in my own personal life. I found often as a guest conductor, I might be on the podium with one orchestra, but I was thinking about a problem that was happening with the orchestra where I was a music director. Mm. Mm. So I would say that's what I would, I was able to make the change that I wanted to. Good, <laughs> good. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? That's an easy one because I've tried it a couple times. And if I was not conducting, I would be a commentator for baseball games. Oh, brilliant. I've been yeah. able to do that and go up as a kind of what they call a color commentary that you do as the sidekick. Mm. And one of the great announcers of the sport was here in St. Louis. His name was Jack Buck. And he taught me about broadcasting. You might actually be able to relate to this if I put it on the basis of football. Mm. If you're listening on the radio, so you can't see anything, you're listening. Oh. There was a moment when Jack and his cohort, they said, Leonard, you've been here enough times. We're going to leave you on your own to do the broadcast. <laughs> and I was scared out of my mind. And then he whispered in my ear. He said, all you need to remember, every 30 seconds, tell them what inning we're in and tell them what the score of the game is. Mm. Mm. I'm amazed how many people don't do that. I know in listening to soccer commentators over there, often you tune in and you're, well, who's playing and what's the score? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You just don't know. There's a wonderful tradition in this country of test match special, which is cricket, which of course takes yeah. all day. Uh, all five days with no result. But, but uh, the, the standard of commentary on that is amazing. And, and those rules you've just said, you know, at the end of every over, the score, who's batting. Um, yeah. But also it's the way of, of describing to somebody so that you can picture it in your, in your mind's eye. That would you know, yeah. Almost yeah. like you're in the stadium. That's a wonderful answer. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? All right. I wrote this one down. Oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> because, again, in my life, I've had incredible culinary experiences. Mm. I love to cook. I mean, this has been a really very fine time for me in that respect, because not only could I control what I was eating, when you're on the road, you can't. No, you can't. That's impossible. Right. So I've actually, so far, over the course of however long we've been isolated, managed to lose 15 pounds of what, so two stone, is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. 
just over just over a stone. Yeah, that's it. So I got one more stone to go. Um, so I thought I would incorporate one element that wasn't in the question, but I'm going to make the assumption that I've made enough money to have what I want. Fine, of course. For my have. last for my last meal. So the first it starts off with the Paul Bocuse encrusted truffle soup. <laughs> oh, this okay. is going to be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's a start. Mm -hmm. There's a second course that is sushi mm -hmm. from a restaurant in New York called Mara. As good as any Japanese sushi I've had. Mm -hmm. I love that. So you bring a little sushi and that's served with a nice, perhaps 2016 Albarino mm -hmm. from northwest of Spain. Okay. Yeah. Then we get a chuleton. That's a really incredible part of the cow. That's you don't ask rare, medium, well done. It just comes. It's on the bone. It mm. melts in your mouth. It has a salt crust. You can find it in many Spanish restaurants, but particularly in one just outside of Madrid called Extuberi. Mm. So we'll have that with the 2008 Cabernet from Screaming Eagle out in California. And then we come to dessert, and now I get to be local. Mm. Here in St. Louis, there is something called frozen custard. It's not the custard like you get in a pudding or something like mm. that. It's, it's ice cream, but the kind that you need to have a cardiologist standing next to you when you eat it. Yeah, but, but it's your last meal, so it, it won't yeah, matter. So I, I don't care if I think <laughs> my world was ending. So I'm going to have that probably with little Heath bar chunks in it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have that with maybe a 2016 Sotem from Chateau Iken. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I shudder to think how much that's just cost us in airfares alone. But I have yeah. to say, no, I know uh, you're bringing the chefs to me. Oh, we're all fine. Okay, we'll bring them to you. You know, the, the, we only have the one night to do it. Yeah. Yeah, to it's, it's the it's the best deliveroo I could ever think of. I would. <laughs> <laughs> Uber eats. Yeah, Uber. Um, yeah, <laughs> Uber them over. That's yeah. Uh, Leonard, what a pleasure talking to you today. Um, it's been a pleasure. Nice, nice to talk to you after, what, about 30 years or so? Yeah, exactly, yes. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Anytime, delight, and all the best to everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, and let's all, as the song goes, till we meet again. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time... I chat with a conductor who, like me, is an ex-professional violinist. Her career has quickly gone from strength to strength, and she now has posts in the Netherlands and Germany, as well as starting very soon as principal guest conductor of the London Philharmonic Orchestra in September 2020. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>